Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you all here. It was fun to worship with you. What a great time with the band. So thank you guys for leading us so well in worship. As Matt said, we're starting our new series on values. This is a big series. This is an important series. The reality is, is that each one of you have values. Every organization, every company has values. Now, they might be express values. They might be unexpressed values. Uh, they may be intentional values. They may be unintentional values. But as a church, one of the reasons why we're trying to write down values and have them clear and concise is because values are the reasons why you get up in the morning. They're why you act the way you act, why you behave the way you behave. It's because of our values that we choose to communicate the things we communicate uh, and why we celebrate what we celebrate and why we measure what we measure. And if our values are unexpressed, if they're unintentional, then we don't know with certainty that we're living under the lordship of Jesus, that we're living out biblical Christianity. So these values point us to Jesus and keep us under the authority of Scripture. And we want to say them out loud, and we want to hold each other accountable to living this way. Because just because you say it's a value doesn't mean you always live like it's a value. Have you ever bought a service or a product from a company, and then a month later, maybe your service, your product wasn't doing exactly what you wanted it to do? So you call them. How does that usually go? Okay, for me, that doesn't usually go very well. So you call that company who is very eager to sell you the product, and now you need some service. You need to answer, have some questions answered. So usually when I make that phone call, I end up talking to a computer. So me and a computer get into a conversation for about 10, 15, 20 minutes, and it never answers the question that I have for it. So if you walk into my office after about 20 minutes, you'll see me with my phone. I'm hitting the zero button saying, talk to a person talk to a person, trying to get the computer to just let me talk to a person. Now, the phone rings and I go to a person. If you've never tried that, that actually works. Like, just keep hitting zero and yelling at the computer. Eventually, it lets you talk to a person. I think it might have feelings. But you hear the phone ring and your expectation is that somebody in Cincinnati or Colorado or maybe California is going to be on the other end. That's never the case. Usually somebody on the other side of the globe picks up the phone and they don't really understand what you're saying and you have no idea what they're saying to you, and you end up frustrated after 35 to 40 minutes. Now that company, if you were to ask them, do you value customer service? What would they say? We are all about customer service, sir. Are they really? As a customer, did I experience good customer service? So what did they really value? They valued sales and profits. Because the moment I was ready to hand a credit card over, there were multiple people ready to take that credit card and swipe it for me, right? They were ready to do that. But a month later, when I needed their help, I couldn't find a real live person who spoke in my native tongue to help me with the issue that I had with the service or product. So at Bible Center, we want to say these are our values, and then we want to actually live out those same values. We have seven on the board. Gospel is the only one that we kind of put at the top. The other six can go in any order, but the gospel is the number one value that we have here at Bible Center. So how do we value the gospel? How do we be people whose actions, behaviors, the way we communicate, the things we measure, the things we celebrate, how do we have those things be centered on the gospel? Well, if you pull out your bulletin, uh, the outline in there, there's three main points I want to walk through, and this is going to get us started in valuing the gospel. The three points are these. 
I want us to know the gospel. I want us to share the gospel, and I want us to live the gospel. Those are all essential if we're going to be a people and a church that says we value the gospel. So even when I say the word gospel, what do I mean by that? The core essential of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and died on the cross. He didn't die arbitrarily. He died because you and I have broken our relationship with God because of our sin. Because of that, there's a consequence. And Jesus died on the cross and bore that punishment and that consequence in our place. And he offers us salvation if we place our faith in him as Lord and Savior. That is the core of the gospel message. But I want us to realize that the gospel is super simple, and at the exact same time, it is crazy complex. The gospel is super simple, but it's also crazy complex. When Jesus shows up on the scene and begins his ministry, he would often walk into towns and describe the gospel and teach the gospel in three words. He'd walk in and say, repent and believe. And he expected a response from those three words, repent and believe. Other times he would say, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Other times he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He sits down with a guy named Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. Jesus tells parables about the gospel. He tells stories about the gospel. He lives out and acts out the gospel by being with people who are undesirable, that no one else wants to hang out with. So you see Jesus living out the gospel as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see Paul teaching the gospel in a very simple way. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 say this, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul takes two verses and describes the whole gospel in two verses. This same Paul starts in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and then for eight straight chapters of some of the most difficult language in Scripture teaches that very same gospel. So the gospel is a simple thing, but it's also a really complex thing, and it can be stated in many different ways. The core just needs to stay the core. The gospel is also more than just an event in my past. The gospel is more than just an event somewhere in the past. It's more than something I just believed and heard and I'm now done with. If your life is a book and each day you live is a page in your book, the gospel isn't something located on just one page several chapters back. It's more than that. The gospel actually has impact on every single page in your book. It influences everything. If the gospel was a race, the gospel is your starting line, the gospel is the pavement under your feet, and the gospel is the finish line out in front of you. The gospel is more than just our past. Even when we celebrate communion, think of the couple of things we're called to emphasize in communion. One, we're called to remember. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus did, past. We're also called to examine how our heart is before the Lord and before others, present. We're also called to continue celebrating it until he returns, future. So communion teaches us those three aspects of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 3 and 4. Let's pick apart this verse together. We see all three aspects here at the beginning of Peter. It says this, In his great mercy, he has given us, past tense, new birth into, present tense, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into, this is forward-looking, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept where? In the future, in heaven, where you're going for you. There's a past aspect, there's a present aspect, and there's a future aspect to the gospel. The gospel is also about more than just me. It's more than just a me gospel. Now, that's important. The gospel is saving you, and that's something to be excited about and to dwell on and to think about, but it's a little more than that. The gospel, according to scriptures, is also saving a people, the capital C Global Universal Church. He's saving and transforming a people. One day, the Bible says, in heaven, the bride of Christ, the totality of the church, the people of God will be together and be betrothed to Christ the Lamb. Like we are being changed together as the capital C church. So it's more than just a me gospel, it's also a we gospel. The Bible also teaches us that when we sinned, when Adam and Eve back in the garden sinned, the world itself was cursed and broken. In fact, it moans under the brokenness. It yearns for the day when it will be changed. The Bible says that the work of Jesus is the work that will one day restore, renew, and God will remake all things the way he wants it to be. So the work of the gospel extends all the way to the entire world. So it's a me gospel, but it's also a we gospel, and it's a whole world gospel. We have to understand the extent of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. The gospel is also the centerpiece of Scripture. The gospel is the centerpiece of Scripture. Jesus walks along the Emmaus Road with a couple of disciples, a couple of followers, and he explains to them and he teaches them, all those things that Moses wrote, those were concerning me. All those things in the prophets that the prophets wrote, those things also concern me. So everything in the Old Testament, everything that came before Jesus was actually pointing to Jesus. All of it is pointing to the Messiah who is to come. So the Old Testament, even down to the details, the symbolism, the different things that happen are pointing to the desperate need of the people of God for a coming Messiah. They point to Jesus. Jesus comes. And then books are written after Jesus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, on through to Revelation. All those books point back to the ramifications of the Jesus who has come. Because he came, this is now how I live. Because he came, I now have the Holy Spirit and I'm called to mission. So all of scripture, whether from the Old Testament or from the New Testament, it all points to one thing, Jesus and the gospel. It's the centerpiece of all of scripture and the centerpiece of all of human history. So we both know the gospel and we're also growing in our knowledge of the gospel. This picture kind of is what pops in my head when I think of this. My family and I went on vacation. That's not me, but we went on vacation and we would go into the ocean. So just because I was in the ocean and I had salt in my eyes and sand in my britches, even though I was in the ocean, it doesn't mean I knew everything about the ocean. 
I hadn't explored all the ocean, but I was in the ocean. With the gospel, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are in the gospel. It's true of you, but there's still so much left to explore and areas to grow. This is what it looks like to be in the gospel, but yet have so much more to learn about that gospel. So we have to know the gospel. Secondly, we have to share the gospel. The gospel is called the good news. Good news isn't something you keep to yourself. Good news is supposed to spread like wildfire, but so rarely do we actually share the gospel with fervency, with excitement, freely, quickly, and passionately. But we're called to share the gospel. If we're gonna say we value it, we're gonna talk about it. If we say it's the centerpiece of our life, it'll be naturally something we talk about with other people. So the good news is designed to be shared. We want it to be easy to understand, for people to receive, for people to apply, and then share it with other people. Like I mentioned before, Jesus shared the gospel in many different ways. We see Stephen in the book of Acts. I don't know if you remember Stephen, but he was a guy who was serving in the early church, and then he was being persecuted. He knew he was about to be stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. So the way he shares the gospel with a group of people who are with him is he recognizes that this was a Jewish group of people. So he starts walking through the Old Testament history, pointing to how it was, the Old Testament history was pointing to the need of a Messiah. And he explains very clearly to them, the Messiah you're looking for is the Jesus who you crucified. So he walks through Jewish history with this Jewish audience so that he might proclaim who Jesus the Messiah is. Go a little bit farther in Acts, you get to chapter 17. Now, Paul is in a place called Mars Hill, and he's surrounded by Greeks. He does not walk through Jewish history. That's not the direction he goes in sharing the gospel. He pulls out an idol from their shopping center, pulls out an idol that says, to the unknown God. He says, the God you're looking for is the God of the Bible. Let me introduce you. And he describes him as the one who's created everything. And he does not need to be served by human hands. He makes an introduction, not by going through Jewish history, but by using something that they can relate to and connecting the real God by having them understand that this fake God is less than what they're looking for. Then he points to the God who they've been longing for all of their lives. So he takes points from culture, points from people's experience to share the gospel. Both were sharing the gospel, just in different ways. I remember in high school, I was taught to use the ABCs. Admit you're a sinner, believe Jesus died in your place, and then commit your life to him. Have you guys ever heard that? The ABCs, that's how I learned how to do it. Uh, maybe for some of you, you've heard of the Roman's Road to share the gospel. Or Evangelism Explosion, my dad did Evangelism Explosion when I was a kid. Or the Four Spiritual Laws, that's something I remember using when I was in college. What I want to introduce to you this morning, and many of you have seen this, are our 10 words of the gospel, our 10 words. This is just another tool, okay? Everything else I listed was a tool. This is another tool. I want you to have a big toolbox with all these different types of tools. So depending on your situation, your conversation, and your relationship, you are ready to share the gospel regardless of what's going on around you. So these 10 words, God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, and God restores. Those 10 words try to encapsulate the greatness, the beauty, and the magnitude of the gospel in a way that people in Charleston in 2019, hopefully, 
can understand. It's like a starting point for you to be able to get into conversations about the gospel. So we've already taught those 10 words through a sermon series. We've taught those 10 words through a core class. That's not what I'm going to do this morning. I just want to pull up those words and point out a couple things that I want you to be able to use and reference from those words to get into conversations that move you forward in sharing the gospel. The first two words are God creates. We now live in a world where when you say God, you should not assume the person sitting across from you has the same thoughts in their mind that you have in your mind. In the same way Paul felt like he had to introduce them to God by describing what he's like, when you say the Lord or you say God, assume that you're going to have to make an introduction. When I say God, I'm talking about the Lord who is all-powerful. He knows all things. He's good. He's gracious. He's also just. He is morally perfect and holy. He holds people responsible for their decisions, but offers grace to those who mess up. That's the God I'm talking about. We need to introduce people to God. The second word is creates. I would just go ahead and assume that most of the people who you're sitting across from who were not raised in church do not think that God created anything. Most people in our society now believe that we are the result of an accident, a shuffling of matter. Things went boom, things went bang, and here you are, okay? So I don't think what we need to do is to get into a bunch of arguments with everybody over creation or evolution. I don't think that's where we need to go. I don't think you need to pull an archaeological chart and try to prove your point. People are rarely argued into the kingdom of God, but allow them to realize the results of what they're believing. If you don't think God created everything, if you really believe this is an accident, do you realize that you are really just a mistake? Your life at the end of the day has pretty much no meaning, and the day when your life ends, it doesn't even matter. There's no purpose to your existence. Are you really okay with that? Does that jive with, is that consistent with your experience in life? Because I wake up in the morning, I feel like there's meaning to what I'm doing. I wake up in the morning, I feel like there's purpose in my relationships and what I do. So for me, it seems to make sense that a relational God has created me with purpose, with meaning, and every day matters because he made me. You can keep the conversation at that level. People don't want to be a mistake. People will open their minds and God will open their hearts to have a conversation that maybe they were created by an all-knowing, all-loving, good God. The second two words, sin breaks. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that God has written his laws on the hearts of men. The laws of God have been written on the hearts of men. If you were to wander... I don't suggest doing this, but if you were to wander like some part of Africa or someplace where no one's really been before and you run into a, a tribe or a group of people that have not had interaction with other groups of people, you're going to find two things that are consistently true. One, they worship something. They worship something. Two, they've established a list of right and wrongs that form some sort of a law within that society. Even people who have never seen God's word or interacted with other people groups, within them, there's a sense that I have been created. There's a sense within them, there's something greater. There's a sense within them, there's a right and there is a wrong. All of those are given to them by the Lord. Now, in America, 
The world, our culture, our society has worked really hard to silence that voice. They say things like this. Everyone is essentially good. You're not responsible for your desires. You can't be expected to control your desires. Truth isn't found outside of you. Truth is found within you. So the only way you can be sinful is by not being true to yourself. You are your own moral compass. The world tries to go at that angle, but it falls so short because just being true to myself means that I'm true to a broken, messed up person. We all see our own brokenness. We all know we fall short. Being true to that doesn't help me get out of my problems. It doesn't fix anything. Sin truly breaks. Another thing the world tries, tries to do is it takes its finger and it points at God and it says, you are the monster. You are the monster. And then the world blames God for disease, for suffering, for hardship, for natural disasters. The world points its finger at God and says, this is your fault. Somehow you're responsible for this. That type of thinking has gotten some major things confused. We're taking suffering, disasters, disease, and we're connecting it to God creates. That's wrong. God did not create those things. It needs to be rightly connected to where it belongs, to sin breaks. Those things exist because sin that was committed and is being committed has broken all things. Here's the monster. There's the monster. It's not God. It's you and me. Our sin has broken everything around us, our relationship with God and with one another and the world itself. Sin broke it, not God. If we really understood how much God was withholding evil from us, if we really understood how much God was holding back sin and suffering, we wouldn't be saying, you're the monster. We'd be saying, thank you. I deserve the full flood and you're holding it back. So I just have a light rainfall hitting my head of sin and suffering. Thank you, Lord, for being such a good, patient, long-suffering God. But what we tend to do is we tend to point our finger at him and say, why are you doing this to me? Instead of, I am the monster. So sin breaks and we're unable to fix our sin we're unable to fix ourselves, and we're stuck with this broken relationship with God. So it causes us to long for these next two words. Jesus saves. God creates. Sin, yours and mine, has broken it all, but we're not left there. Jesus saves. And when we say Jesus, we're not talking about a good teacher. We're not talking about a moral man. We're not talking about a great religious leader. We're talking about the Son of God who came down from heaven, who has existed for all of eternity, who spoke the world into being, came down, took on flesh and blood. So he became man and God, 100% of each. And he chose to die on the cross in your place and mine. Our sin broke everything. Each of us have a cup of God's wrath that we should be the ones drinking. But instead, Jesus drank that cup. The punishment landed on him. And when he died on the cross, he died the death I should have died so that I can live the life that he wants me to live. Jesus dies in our place. The way he saves is he offers to each and every one of us the opportunity to place our faith in him. So what do we need to tell people? Everyone is not inherently good. Everyone is not automatically saved. A choice must be made. 
The offer is made to all, but only those who express with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that Christ raised, that God raised him from the dead, those are the ones who will be saved. Those are the ones who will have an eternal relationship with God that will be unending, amazing, forever. The good news that Jesus saves is available to all. But those are not the last words. Jesus also transforms. Jesus transforms. So not only, again, did he save us in the past, he's transforming us right now. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, He, that being Jesus, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Jesus, who began this good work in you, who began this salvation in you, he's not done with you. He started it, and he's going to complete it. So, I love my wife. We'll go out and we'll play, like, we'll try to play tennis or something. There's a point there where she just gets tired of playing, and then she'll, like, start hitting the ball, like, to the other side of the court to watch me run back and forth, because she just is tired of playing. And then I get tired of playing, because that's not very fun, and then we're done. Jesus doesn't just start something and then end it. Like, he continues until it's over, until it's completed. Jesus saves us, and then he transforms us. The good news that saved you is the good news that transforms you. The faith that saved you is the faith that sanctifies you. So, why do we need Jesus to transform us? Can't we just try harder? Can't we just do better? I mean, isn't that what we do with our kids? Stop doing that, start doing this. Be better, change your behavior. The reason why it's Jesus who transforms rather than I transform myself is because his expectation is bigger than just my behavior. He says that your heart matters. If you do the right thing with the wrong heart, it's still sin. Did you catch that? If you do the right thing with the wrong heart, motivations, intentions, desires, purpose, it's still sin. And I can't just change my own desires. I can't just make myself fall more in love with Jesus. I need Jesus to interact with me and to change me and to work inside of me so that I'm transformed from the inside out. So when my hands do something, my heart is consistent with my hands. I'm a transformed person because Jesus is transforming me from the inside out. Then I'm beginning to live a life of real obedience from the inside out out. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, we see Jesus show up, and he talks to a couple guys who had some fishing nets, and he challenges them. And in his challenge, we get, in his challenge, we get a feel for what his process is going to be, and his intention is going to be. He looks at these guys, and he says, follow me. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But he starts with, follow me. He looks at them and says, a decision needs to be made. Second part of the verse says, and I will make you. Jesus says, I will do this. I will enter you into a process where I will make you fishers of men. That is, followers of Jesus who make more followers of Jesus. That you will become disciples who make more disciples fishers of men. So Jesus had a product in mind. 
He says, make a decision, and then I will work in your life, and I will form you, and I will change you, and I will grow you, I will transform you, and the result of that process is you will be disciples who make disciples. So how do we know that Jesus is changing us? Are we moving in a path towards making disciples, being a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples? Am I a follower of Jesus who's calling others to follow Jesus? A transformed disciple is a disciple who makes more disciples. So God creates, sin breaks, Jesus saves, Jesus transforms, but that's not the end. The last two words are God restores. I think you can sense this. I don't think I'm making this thing up, but I think within all of us, there's a sense that we were made for more. I think that there's a sense that even though Jesus is transforming me, transforming me, things are not yet made right. I know that things are still wrong. I think even the world can see that things are still wrong. But it's only the gospel, it's only the story of the gospel where in the end, all the wrong things are made right. You can go to the movies and you can read stories that have great endings, like you could watch that whole Lord of the Rings series, and at the end, you find a hobbit who's found some peace in the Shire. Oh, Frodo, those were good days. Okay, so like, you know, you can watch that movie. Or you can watch a movie, and at the end, the two lovers are united. I think that's a picture from my 20s. That's Jen and I right there, and that's, that's back when I was doing the facial hair thing. It's a good pick, dear. Um, so there's that one. Or maybe after 10 years of watching movies, that guy finally dies, okay? So whatever the movie is, at the end, you're wanting some great ending, some great ending. But here's the reality. All those are good stories, but all of them pale in comparison to what God is going to do. Because at the end of those stories, every single one of them, there's still sin and suffering in the world. At the end of those stories, even if death has been avoided, it's only been avoided for a short period of time. Death still wins in every single one of those stories. It's only in the gospel message where everything is truly made right. Sin is eradicated at the end when God restores. Everything that's wrong is made right. Every tear is wiped away because there's no more suffering. And death is defeated. It doesn't get to win. It's not even on the playing field anymore. It's gone. So you don't need to go to the movies to experience a great story. You don't need to read a book to experience a great story. You are living the greatest story ever told, the gospel. The greatest story ever told. You're written on the pages of that story already. God will restore all things. Only Him, only He, only the gospel makes all things right. And if that's true, if that's true, invite people to jump into the story. Share the gospel happily, frequently, with excitement, knowing that there's no greater hope than what you're offering in the gospel message. They need it so desperately, and you have it. Don't just take them to the movies. Show them Jesus. That's the greatest story that will ever, ever be told. You hear us talking a lot nowadays about trying to saturate the city with the gospel. Here's the reality. Unless you and I are saturating 
our friend groups, our circles of influence, those we have relationships, if we're not saturating those with the gospel, we will never saturate the city with the gospel. If you don't see your own personal mission field in your life, and you're not sharing this great story, the reality of the gospel in that mission field with those people, we will never reach this city. So each of us are called to be everyday missionaries who share this wonderful gospel. The third point is we need to live the gospel. We know it, we share it, and we live it. If you look at the book of Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, you see it in James, uh, you see in Colossians, all these different books of the Bible in the New Testament teach the gospel. Romans. There's a lot of time spent teaching the gospel. Were those books written to Christians or non-Christians? Those books were actually written to Christians. Why would Paul, why would James, why would the author of Hebrews take so much time to write the gospel and teach the gospel to those who've already believed it? Because Christians need to be reminded of the gospel. Christians need to hear the gospel over and over again, like waves crashing on the seashore. You just need to sit there and be washed over again and again with the truth of the gospel. We have to continue to explore and go deeper and deeper with the truth and the reality of the gospel. The New Testament authors know that, so they continue to teach it again and again, even to those who believe. In the bottom of your notes there, you're going to see a book that I recommend. It's called A Gospel Primer for Christians. I'm going to present four points here, areas where I think we can live out the gospel well. That book has 30 points. I had 20, but I had to cross a bunch out so we weren't going to be here all day together. So I'm going to give you four. But this is an excellent book. I strongly encourage it. It looks like an old-school Puritan book, but it was actually recently written. It's really well done, thinking through how to live out the gospel. So how can we here at Bible Center live out the gospel? First point, first suggestion, first application. We don't measure ourselves by our own perfect lives. We measure ourselves with the perfection of Jesus. We don't measure ourselves by our own perfect lives. We measure ourselves by the perfection of Jesus. What do I mean by that? We have a tendency to have our home, our car, our wardrobe, our bodies, our friend groups, our children, where they go to school, the way we dress them, their friend groups, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. We have expectations that they look a certain way because we find our identity in those things. We will never live up to perfection Jesus already lived up to perfection. If we could find ourselves measuring ourselves in Jesus, who is already perfect, we're going to be in a much healthier situation. When you lose that home or you lose that car or your kid can't seem to dress properly, like it's okay. It doesn't shake or rattle your world because your world is found in your identity, which is in Jesus. And it's his perfection that matters, not your attempt at perfection. So the worth of your things goes down a little bit. They're wonderful. They're gifts from God. But in comparison to Jesus, they're down here. Because your measuring stick, the way you look at yourself, the way you view the world, is through the perfection of Jesus, not your attempt at a perfect life. Second point of application. Because of the gospel, and if we value the gospel, we have the ability to be open and honest with one another about struggles, things that we've messed up, 
failures and our brokenness. Why? Because the gospel, the gospel proclaims two things from mountaintop to mountaintop that everyone already knows about you. The gospel says out loud, you and I are so profoundly broken, messed up, sinful, and unable to fix ourselves that the God of the universe had to send his beloved son to die in your place and mine. You couldn't get it together. You couldn't fix yourself. Neither could I. So instead of us fixing ourselves in our hopelessness, God sent Jesus. So from mountain peak to mountain peak, we already know you're messed up. I messed up. Let's just realize it. Let's own it so we can talk about it. The second thing that the gospel proclaims just as loudly, in fact, even another decibel higher, is you're not only broken, but you're beloved. You're beloved. Jesus didn't leave you in that state of brokenness. He loves you so much that he offers forgiveness to you. He says, follow me and I will fix you. I will make you into something new, better. I will make you like me and one day I will restore you. So we're broken, but we're beloved. Both of those realities are profound in how we view ourselves and the friends that we have in our life. We want you to have friends in your life who are spiritual, who are committed to you, who know you well. And in those times together, I want you to be able to share how you're really doing. And instead of receiving a pointing finger or judgment, they say, we love you and we're committed to you. Jesus loved me in my brokenness. I'm going to love you in your brokenness. So for us to be transformed by the gospel, for us to value the gospel, it means we share openly, we share freely. And the, res the response we get from our brothers and sisters is, it's okay, we're going to help you. We love you. We're there for you in Jesus. So it changes all of that. Third application point for living out the gospel. We are more than the cup is half full kind of people. We're more than the cup is half full kind of people. So I'm not against positive thinking, but oftentimes when we have circumstances come into our life, when we have situations come into our life, we have people who say, well, just look at the bright side. Look at the good part of it. Look at the cup half full. That is not going to get you very far in life, okay? It's just not. Whether it's three quarters full, a quarter full, or half cup full, it's not going to get you very far because there's a whole different cup that you and I have to look at if we're really going to make it through this world. Take the cup that's half full, kick it on the floor. There's a whole different cup. The Bible's very clear that you and I have filled up a cup with God's punishment, with God's wrath against our sin. The Bible says one sin is all it takes for us to be separated from God. And we've, we've all done at least one, right? I've done more than one. So all of, his, all of us have filled up this cup. But because you're beloved, because Jesus loves you, Jesus said, I'll drink your cup. I'll take what was destined for you, which you earned, and I'll put it on myself. And Jesus takes that cup, which is 100% full, and he drinks it down, and the wrath of God lands on him. Your punishment lands on him. He drinks every drop until there's none left. And he takes that same cup, and then he fills it all the way up, Ephesians 1 calls it all spiritual blessings. Jesus fills that cup that was once full of God's wrath and says, this is for you. I have filled it up with all spiritual blessings. You're now holy before God the Father. 
you're now blameless before God the Father. You have full acceptance before God the Father. Drink of this cup. It will never run dry. It's yours now and forever. So when we see that cup and we've knocked the other cup out of the way, when circumstances come into our life and situations that don't make sense, they feel like it's running us over, we've been given levels of gratitude, levels of thanksgiving, realizing that there was a cup we didn't have to drink, and there's a cup that we can forever drink, full of God's spiritual blessings for those who believe for now through all of eternity. That's the cup that matters. You and I were more than just the cup is half full kind of people. The last point. Um, And I think there's probably people here who need to hear this last point. I sometimes need to hear this last point. The gospel teaches us that you can never wander too far. You can always come home. You can never wander too far. You can always come home. No matter what you've done, no matter what relationship you've broken, no matter who you've hurt, no matter what brokenness you have in your life or you've caused in the life of another, the gospel proclaims, it teaches us, you can never wander too far. You can always come home. The porch light is always on. The front door is unlocked. And the father stands right inside with his arms wide open. I'm not even sure who I'm talking to right now, but there's a couple of you in here who need to hear that. You can come home. God has not given up on you yet or ever if you've placed your faith in Jesus. At the end of this service and every service, we have the doors open back there, and we have people in a prayer room waiting to pray with you and for you. If you're ready to come back home, if you wonder if God still wants you, accepts you, or loves you, it's time for you to get prayed for. We'd love to help you in that way. So when this service ends, we'd love to pray for you right back there. You can never wander too far, and you can always come home. So to be a church and to be individuals who truly value the gospel, that means the gospel is lived out in our actions, our behaviors, what we talk about, what we measure, and what we celebrate. The way we can do that is by knowing the gospel, sharing the gospel, and by living out the gospel. Spend time in God's Word, dwelling on the gospel. It will change you. What I'd like to do for the next 20 seconds is give you some time to talk to the Lord. Perhaps there's an area of your life where you want to live out the gospel more. Maybe there's a, a name or a face that's popped in your head that you know needs to hear this gospel message. It's good news that maybe you haven't shared with anybody else in a while. Pray for that person. Pray for yourself. And then I'm going to close this in corporate prayer. So take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes. I'll close this off in about 20 seconds. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.